Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to read through verse 9. But it happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren, the army of Samaria, and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite, he was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall. The entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the wall of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all the men conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Father, it's nothing new. And for work to be tried by the enemies and to be tested. And Father God, today we're living in very similar times. Lord, where the things of God are belittled. Holiness and righteousness is mocked. Father, if we're not careful, we can get bitter, we can retreat, and we can huddle back into a holy cloister and not impact our world. So, Father, I pray today that you'll help us to take some principles, eternal principles that Nehemiah lived out in everyday life that we can apply to our lives so, God, that we might be a people that is undaunted by opposition, that we won't let discouragement from within defeat us, but, God, that we will come up with a positive plan through the power of prayer and we'll see you victorious. 
God never in my life have I seen morals and the very fiber of families being undercut and criticized and so today God I pray that we will take courage and that we will look to you and that we as a church and as your people will finish what you've called us to do we pray this for your glory in Jesus name amen uh, you may be seated I want to just read also from first Peter uh, just to kind of give a New Testament application so you don't have to turn there but if you would like to turn to first Peter chapter 4 you may first Peter chapter 4 I'm gonna read 12 through 19 beloved Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Nehemiah didn't need to think it strange what was happening. The Arabs around him, the Palestinians that lived there, were hostile to the things of God. They were a displaced people that had been taken to Babylon. Their kingdom had been destroyed, their temple burned, their walls knocked down. And if we put this in the historical perspective of the Old Testament, we can kind of piece together why this fledgling little population of Jewish people were so under attack. So we remember from our previous sermons in Nehemiah, that in the year 22 B.C., Shalmaneser V, king of Assyria, came and besieged the city of Samaria. That's found in 2 Kings chapter 17. After the siege, the city fell, and he carried all of the populace of Israel, the entire northern kingdom, ten tribes, carried them all and dispersed them all over the Middle East. And then he repopulated Samaria, Palestine, with people from all over the empire who knew nothing of God and were the enemies of the Jews prior to coming there. And that's the group of people that Nehemiah is now surrounded with. And the Jews had continued to be dispersed. And Peter is writing to Jews who are scattered and dispersed all over the Roman Empire. What makes matters worse, these Jews were becoming followers of Jesus. And they were saying there's only one king, only one God. And it's not Caesar, it's not Nero. And they were the objects of everyone's wrath. So if it didn't rain on your garden, who got the blame for it? It was the Christian because they weren't paying attention to the right God. When the city of Rome burned and Nero needed a scapegoat, it was the Christian who got the blame. 
And Jesus told us when he was here, the world doesn't hate you, the world hates me. The world hates me because I am reproving the world of its sin. And Nehemiah, when he came back, was a constant reminder to these nations that there was one true holy God, and this was his city that he has chosen for his place of worship. And so Peter says, beloved, don't think it strange when this fiery trial happens to you as if something weird is going on. He doesn't use that word, but (laughs) something strange happening. But rejoice in the extent that you're also a partaker in Christ's suffering. And be exceeding glad if you are reproached for the name of Christ. Blessed are you for the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. On your part, he is glorified. But none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a busybody in other people's business. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the house of God. If it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? Now, if the righteous are scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. And Nehemiah was practically living this out. He committed his soul, he committed this work in doing good as unto a faithful creator who had called him to come back to the city and rebuild the walls. So, our true character really is revealed when we get under pressure. You'll discover things about yourself that you really don't like when you get under pressure. But it will also prove those things that are excellent about you, things that you didn't know that you had inside of you when you get under pressure. It's kind of like taking that tea bag and putting that boiling water And as soon as that boiling water hits the teabag, then you know what's really inside of that teabag. You know its contents. And trials serve the same purpose in our life. Referring back to 1 Peter, remember that this was a letter written to Christians who are under persecution. And so Peter reminds them how great their salvation is. What an incredible inheritance they're going to have. And then he says, in this, in which that salvation, this inheritance, this wonderful, glorious life that God has called us to in following him. He says, in this calling and in this salvation, we greatly rejoice. And then he says, in spite, it's a concessive clause And he concedes that in spite of though for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness, sorrow. And what is the cause of the sorrow? It is many faceted trials. 
And here's the purpose, that the trying of your faith, your faith, which is much more precious than gold, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So we can handle opposition knowing that God sends it into our lives and it's only for a season and it's needed so that we might look more like the Savior. So character is built through trials. One of my favorite missionaries is a man named William Carey. He was called the father of modern missions. And he grew up in England during a time where Reformed theology, or Calvinism, dominated the religious climate. He had such a burden for foreign missions, and he presented it to the clergy that he was a part of this association with for their approval, and he met it with nothing but opposition. They said, if God intends to save the heathen, he doesn't need you. He's already destined them to believe, or he's destined them to hell. And you can't do anything, William Carey, so don't bother going. And pamphlet after pamphlet that he wrote, it was undermined and discouraged, and he continued to pray, and he continued to look for God for a solution. And then he heard about a man who broke from the mold. His name was Charles Wesley and John Wesley. And John Wesley and Charles Wesley believed that God had called them to the Americas to evangelize the Choctaw Indians. And he studied their methodology and how they learned the language, how they translated the Bible into their own dialects, and how they took on the customs and winning people to Christ. And he said, God, you could do the same thing if you send me to India. And he was met with opposition after opposition when he got to India. The Hindus did not welcome him. The foreign nationals that were from England did not welcome him. His wife hated it. She was so depressed that she died. One of his children passed away in India. His entire manuscripts of over 30 different Hindi dialects went up in flames and burned. But he stayed the course. And here was the bottom line for him. It was Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. For he had a mind to work. And that's what will get you and I through those difficult times, knowing that God has called us to whatever ministry it is and that we're going to face opposition. When we read chapter 4, opposition is mounting against Nehemiah. We can trace it all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 2 when Sanballat heard that there was someone coming to aid the children of Israel. He mocked it. And then he laughed at it. And then he ridiculed it. And now it's even growing to where he's now furious and indignant and enraged. So what are some of these principles? 
The first principle is we need to understand that opposition that you and I are going to face because we're followers of Jesus really has nothing to do with us. It's an affront against God. Verse 5 says, Don't cover their iniquity. This is his prayer. Don't blot out their sin, for they have provoked you. People who are angry with you or people who oppose you is really that they're angry with God. And I think that helps us remember that we are partakers of Christ's suffering. What a privilege that is. That God counts you and I worthy to partake in the sufferings of Christ. So opposition really is an affront against God. Their anger was not directed so much against Nehemiah, but it was God's program and God's people. So if we go back just a couple chapters, let's flip back over to Nehemiah chapter 2 and read verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the official, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. That's what bothered Sanballat. Somebody actually cared. That Somebody was actually going to do something to help God's impoverished people and to bring back a sense of well-being in this city. This was the city that represented salvation to the world. Let's look at chapter 2 and verse 19. And when Sanballat the Horite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the official, and Gresham, the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and they despised us. and says, what is this thing that you're going to do? Will you rebel against the king? So they twisted and distorted what they were really doing. In reality, the king had given them the grant to go back. The king had given them a blank check to go to the forest and take whatever they needed. And so they're twisting their motives. So now it has grown from laughter and mocking to full-blown rage. And it was against God. Look what Nehemiah answers. So I answered and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper. So he is saying, God is going to do this. I want my enemies to see what God is doing. You Palestinians who have, have no lot in this, and that's what he says to them. He says, you are dispersed people that were brought here by Shalmaneser and by Sargon, the Assyrian kings. You have no lot in this place. You have no heritage. You have no memorial in Jerusalem. But you're going to see what the God of heaven is capable of doing. Their anger was against God, against the God of heaven, when they saw the walls going up. They knew it was the God of heaven, the sovereign God who was over the universe. And they were powerless to stop the God of heaven. And so their anger was directed toward Nehemiah and the builders. So remember that today. The opposition really is an affront against God. Let's look at the rhetorical questions, and kind of we can kind of summarize it in, in one statement. But the rhetorical questions are, what are these feeble Jews doing? So what's that? 
This is what the world wants you and I to think, that we really have no influence. As Jesus Christ followers, we are this silent minority that just needs to shut up and sit in a corner and not voice our opinions when we see immorality rampant, when we see our schools overrun by godlessness. Christians, you're feeble. You have no influence. Shut up and sit down. You cannot make a difference. What's the next thing? He says, will you fortify yourselves? Look what you're trying to do. The stones are all falling down. It's rubbish. The wall's been down for almost 140 years. Do you guys think you can really turn the tide? You know... Rick and our men were talking yesterday morning, and we were talking about how many times, and I'm guilty of it, saying, oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But what I'm really saying is, God, I'm ready to quit. (sighs) I'm tired of the fight. Just let the liberals have America and let it burn. What a wrong attitude. We should say, God, raise us up. God, let it... Jesus might not come back for another thousand years. We don't know, do we? And we need to be prepared to try to do all we can to reach as many people as we can with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our God is not coming back. Why? Because our God is long-suffering. Because our God is not willing that anybody should perish. Our God wants all people to repent and come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so when I'm saying, Lord, come back quickly, I'm saying, I don't care about my neighbor who's opposing me. I don't care about these liberals who hate God. I should love them. I should care for them. I should be doing all I can. Your religion doesn't work. Are you going to sacrifice? You guys sacrificed for all these years, and what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He came and crushed your temple. The obstacles are insurmountable. The work is weak and powerless, and it's not going to last anyway. All it's going to take is a fox to knock it down. Well, how do we respond? Here's another biblical principle. How do we respond when we are reviled? We don't revile in return. We pray to the God of heaven. God is our vindicator. God is the one who is just and righteous. Again, in the context of 1 Peter, suffering, persecution, opposition, discouragement. Peter writes to those Christians in the first century, when Jesus was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself To him who judges righteously. And so we see here, Nehemiah, he doesn't get caught up in reviling back to these Arab factions that were trying to discourage him. Instead, he prays. He says, oh, God. He says, hear. It's an imperative, but it's not a command. It's a strong plea. God, you need to hear. God, listen to this. It's an imprecatory prayer. 
And many of the psalms were filled with imprecatory psalms. And I'll just read a bit of one today. And you can see how these psalmists would write when they felt that they were just overwhelmed by opposition. Our soul is exceedingly filled with scorn by those who are at ease. The contempt of the proud try to dissuade us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. That's where we go. We go to God. We beseech Him. So let's kind of look at Nehemiah's prayer. He says, return the reproach on their own head. Now, this isn't a prayer for vindiction. This is a prayer for God to deal justly. God, you're a just God, and I can trust you. I don't have to take this into my own hands. God, you, in your timing, you bring the reproach on their own head. Second, he says, give them as plunder in the land of captivity. This, the idea of this is let them reap the fruit, God. One of the best things that we can pray for those who are against us, Lord, just let them see the fruit of what they're doing so then I can reach out to them. And then the next thing he says, don't cover their iniquity. The, the word to cover, the Hebrew word kafir, means to atone. It means to grant forgiveness. And atonement can only be given when forgiveness is legitimate and sincere. So he's saying, God, bring them to the place where they ask for your atonement. Don't just have a blind eye to it. God, reckon with them. And here's why. Because they are provoking you, Lord. It's your reputation. Jesus said this in John 15, 18. They hate you, but let me tell you, if the were of the world, the world would not hate you. You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that I word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So what does he do? He commits himself to the Lord. Look what he does, verse 6. He prays, and then he said, so we built the wall. Committing to the Lord frees you to do the work. When you give it to God, when you pray and you say, Lord, this is now in your hands, I can get back to work. I don't have to worry about it. I'm going to do what you've called me to do, and I'm not going to slow down. And that's exactly what they did. They committed it to the Lord, and by committing it to the Lord, they were able to be freed from trying to take care of those things themselves that they couldn't do anyway. And that's what you and I need to do. We need to commit it to the Lord. And here is the bottom line. The bottom line was that they had a mind to work. Now, what does that mean? We need to remind ourselves, what is it that we are building? They had a mind to work because they knew they were building the city of God. You and I can have a mind to work because we know that what we are building is eternal. Our lives are not just spent on a temporal plane. 
Second, having a mind to work. I need to ask, my question, ask myself this. What is it going to take to get me to quit? How much pressure, how much defeat, how much discouragement when you have a mind to work? It doesn't matter what happens to you. You're going to get it done. You're going to find a way. You're not going to make an excuse. And thirdly, having a mind to work. Does God ultimately judge righteously? They had a mind to work because they knew God was going to do righteously. Now, things seem to get worse after this. When Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arab and the Ammonite, heard that they were storing the gaps, they became very angry. And then they come up with a conspiracy to come and attack Jerusalem. So now the opposition is even growing. It begins to settle discouragement inside the camp. Verse 10. Then Judah said, the strength of the labors is failing. There's much rubbish, and we're not able to build the wall. And then they hear about this conspiracy that an attack could come at any moment, verse 12. So it is when the Jews who dwelt near came, they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will come upon us. So when, when you have this organized affront, or you can see the opposition growing and mounting, and you know that it's really against God, you, you've prayed to the God of heaven, you put your hands back to the work, but when you see the opposition really mounting, this, I think, is so key, is that is to have a balanced that I'm going to pray and I am going to have a plan of action. If you can still see yourself moving in the right direction and moving with God no matter what the opposition is, you know you're making progress in God's kingdom. I talked to a, to a mother yesterday who was disenchanted with the public school system, felt overwhelmed with the opposition, shared with me the things that this public school was teaching to her children. And instead of just being overwhelmed with it, this family has come up with a plan. And that plan includes homeschooling, it includes incorporating Bible. It incorporates learning how to read, write, do arithmetic, and every. And instead of just being overwhelmed by a system that you feel like I can't fight against it, it's it's too much. You can. All of us can. We come up with a plan, and that is a plan that's balanced with prayer and action. In Psalm one twenty-seven, verse one says. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain that build it. And unless the Lord watches and guards the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. 
So you can have the watchman on the wall, Nehemiah, but unless God is invested in that work, you're doing it for naught. So what does it say in verse 9? It says, nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them, we set a watch. Praying doesn't mean that you just sit down and do nothing. Praying means, okay, God, I'm going to get to busy, and I'm going to do what you've called me to do. And what else did he do? He had a group of men sit behind the wall, and he gave them weapons. They had a plan. And not only did he give them weapons, he gave them swords, spears, and bows. But then he also assigned men to to blow the trumpet. And if they attacked over here, you blow the trumpet, and we'll all rally over there if you blow the trumpet. So they had this plan intact. The balance between prayer and planning. In Nehemiah 4.10, let's read 4.10 through 13. So Judah said, look at all this rubbish. And then they said, look at our adversaries. They're in the midst, and they're going to come and kill us, and we don't even know where they're going to come from. When the Jews dwelt near, they said, whatever place they're going to be, they're going to be upon us. Verse 13. Look at verse 13. Therefore I position men behind the lower parts of the wall, the opening And I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. What did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah could have looked at all this and he said, you know what, let's just curse the darkness. And I find that that's what Christians are really good at doing. We can watch Fox News and we can come and we can have our little huddles and we can have a big old pity party. Look what's happening to our country. Look what's happening to our children. And we just feel so. That's not what Nehemiah did. We need to stop cursing the darkness and start lighting some candles. Now, that expression was a governor of Illinois was given a eulogy to Eleanor Roosevelt, actually. That's where that phrase came from. And the only reason I know that is I grew up in Illinois, and Adlai Stevenson was a governor of Illinois. And then he went on to be an ambassador to the UN. But he was giving this incredible eulogy, and Eleanor Roosevelt lived during some of the worst oppression, racism, prejudice, hatred toward any foreign group, and she did more to help those people. And so that was a phrase, and that's what, as believers, we need to see the opposition and understand the opposition, but instead we need to light candles. That's what Nehemiah does here. Therefore, I positioned men. I got ready for the attack. Now, what does that do? When you and I see the opposition, we pray, we come up with a plan, we start lighting candles. You know what it does to the opposition? It has the effect of disarming them. Let's keep reading. And it happened, verse 15. It happened when our enemies heard that we, that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So what did God do here? 
God, in effect, disarmed all of their criticisms, all of their attacks, all of their opposition with a plan. And they remembered God and what they were doing. Let's look at verse 14. And he looked and he rose and he said to the nobles, to the leaders, and the rest of the people, first of all, he says, don't be afraid. We've got a plan. And then he says, remember the Lord. We need to remember the Lord, don't we? If God is for us, what's the rest of that verse? Who can be against us? Right on. Another wonderful promise found in Hebrews chapter 3. Let your conversation, let your lifestyle be without covetousness. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say in the day of trouble, the Lord is with me. What can man do to me? Nothing. And so we need to remember that. And so he says, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. And then we need to think about why we're engaged in this spiritual battle to begin with. Fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, every one of you, without exception. That's what the word all means there in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Again, 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice in so much as you are partakers of Christ's suffering. So three, three simple things. Remember that the opposition is really an affront against God. And it's because you belong to Christ. Second thing, don't return retribution or reviling or bitterness against bitterness. That's not how we do spiritual warfare as a Christian. We overcome evil with good. We pray for those who despitefully use us. And thirdly, we keep a balance between prayer and a plan of action. Because when we do that, in essence, we have disarmed our enemies. So let's close in prayer. Father, God, I don't know how you're going to use this teaching today. God, maybe it was meant for me and my family, my wife, more than anything, God. But you came to me this week through this scripture, Lord. And God, it is a reminder that when we stand for truth, when we stand for righteousness, we're going to encounter ridicule and opposition. And Lord, maybe you're going to use it this week in somebody's life. They're going to encounter criticism or scoffing or mocking because of their spiritual convictions 
because of their beliefs. And, and God, as a church in America, God, we as your people, we need to rebuild the walls. The, the lost world needs to see us busy at your work. God, we, we can't stop, Lord. We've got to, to move forward as a Christian community. God, we as your people, we've got to have a mind to work, Lord. God, we've got to pray to you, O oh Lord God of heaven. You, you hear the news, God. You, you see what's happening in our public schools. You, you see what's happening in our court system, our legal system. God, where the Ten Commandments are being stripped off the walls of our courthouses. God, where our, our children are, are being taught that there is no such thing as male or female. Lord God, you hear it, you see it, God, and it's against you, Lord. And I pray, God, that as your church, as your people, God, that we will not be disheartened, God. We pray, God, that you will let them see the fruit of what they're doing, God, and that people, that in America will see a revival, God. God, we're living in northern Utah, and it's not any different here, Lord. Some of the most liberal lawmakers and, and, and one of the worst school districts in the state, God, you see it, Lord. Open people's eyes, Lord. May, may North Valley Bible Church, God, be a lighthouse. People who are looking for answers, may they come here and see that we are building the walls. May they see them rising up out of the rubble, God. God, breathe revival into us. Lord, give us a mind to work as your people. And Father God, help us to come up with a positive plan so that we know what we're going to do when the attacks come. We've got people positioned in the right places with the right tools at the right time, ready to sound the alarm. And God, let us be ready to rally around each other. When that trumpet goes up, if one of our brothers is struggling, God, and that trumpet is being blown, I pray as a church, God, we will come around and we'll rally around that family. We'll rally around that individual. Oh, God, we need to remember you. We don't need to be afraid. You are with us. If you are with us, nothing can stop us. Lord, what can man in the final analysis do to us? Lord, God, we commit the work of this church to you today, Lord. May you build it. May you break the walls out. May we expand, God, so that we can reach more people. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.